All right, welcome everybody. Um, good to have you here. We are um, a couple weeks into a series we are, that is looking at the practices of the early church um, to see how we as a community of disciples can shape our life together. Um, to grow as disciples together. Um, we see that we as the church are called together as the body of Christ on a mission. And in that, we partake of certain practices individually, but we also do them together as a group. So we're looking at how the early church did this to better inform our practices. Um, we're using the text from Acts. This occurs right after Pentecost. Um, thank you. When the um, spirit falls, Peter gives up and gives a sermon, and 3,000 are added on that day. And then uh, Luke here, the author of Acts, does something that he does a few times in the books. He stops and gives a summary. Um, if this was a movie, this would be the montage, where you've had your event, and now you have a quick summary of kind of what's going to get context for what's to come in the specific events. And the nice thing for us is it gives a good encapsulated picture of the practices of this first church. So if you'll turn with me in Acts to chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So out of the gate, we can see they were devoted to something. Uh, Terry brought this up, I think, the last two times. There's a, the first thing it says about them is they were devoted to something. Um, the English word devotion doesn't quite capture the full idea of what the, is behind the, um, the Greek here. Uh, devotion in, in English can run the range from like a devoted puppy um, that just kind of follows you around to a devoted person who is very loyal, is the general sense of it, a faithfulness, um, to a devotion that's actually like giving your life for something. But generally, it sits in that middle range of it's a loyalty or a faithfulness that will spring into action when it's called upon. It's more of a disposition. You are a devoted person, a devoted husband, a devoted father. It means that when it comes time for you to do something along, along those lines, you rise up to do them. But the Greek word here has a more active meaning. It's something that's consistently engaging. It's a word that is not all that common. Um, Paul uses it twice, and both times he is urging people to constant prayer. He's not urging them to a disposition that will, when the time for prayer comes, spring into prayer, but actually to be constant and consistent in prayer. It's an active thing that's being done consistently. Um, but by far the majority of the uses of this word are actually in the book of Acts. Luke likes the word. Um, and actually, Dan, can you toss up um, verse 46 again? Because it actually appears twice in this paragraph. You just don't catch it because we translate it differently for some reason both times. But as you can see in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The same word for devoted is the word used there for attending. 
it means to persist in something. It's basically saying day by day, they were persisting in being in the temple together with one mind. That's the more literal translation of what's, what's being said there. It is an idea of them doing something consistently on a daily basis. One person says this word can be translated as a dogged pursuit or an obstinate pursuit. It is a consistent, active pursuit of something. That's why Paul can use it about prayer. It is to doggedly pursue prayer consistently. And that's why you can use it here for the temple. They were not here being called to be devoted to the temple in the sense that when the time came, they went. They are here going every day to the temple because they're devoted to being together. They're pursuing being together. So this is the idea behind this word. It's a dogged, consistent pursuit of something. So we get this opening section where they are devoted to some things. And depending on how you want to count, they're devoted to two things or to four things. It says they're devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So that's four things, but there's a way you can read it, and it's probably the more correct way, which is the latter two are basically defining the second one. So it's devoted to the apostles' teaching, item one, and devoted to the fellowship, the second item, which is this breaking of bread together and being in prayer. And you think about it, Breaking bread has both a horizontal and a vertical um, axis here. And by that, I mean it's something you relationally do for fellowship with one another. So it is a devotion to the fellowship. And it's also something in the Eucharist or in the Lord's Supper, we have a relationship with the Father, too. So it's a fellowship there. And you also have prayer, which is something you join, going direct to God, where you're having fellowship with him. So it's a devotion to a fellowship there. And it's also a devotion to a lateral fellowship as we join our voices together in prayer. But Terry covered that half in the previous two weeks, so go back and listen eventually to those. Um, But this week we're looking at the first one, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they had a dogged, obstinate pursuit of the apostles' teaching. And I want to consider a few things about that phrase, the apostles' teaching. First, who, what, why, and how. Who are the apostles? What is their teaching? Why is it important? And how do we apply it now? Is that who, what, why, and how? And this is unknown length down. So the first thing is, who are the apostles? This is not a common word for us today. Um, At my previous job, uh, the one I had before now, we sold, amongst other things, we sold audio equipment. And one of our, the industries, which is a funny word for it, that we would sell into was churches. Uh, we would sell the sound equipment, the boards that would be in back of big churches, not whatever we're using here, but like a big, impressive, huge church. Those boards were the ones we sold. Because, I mean, these things were cost one hundred twenty-five to $250,000. And every week, we'd have a forecast call where we would sit through and we'd walk through all of the people we were selling them to. So the sales manager, the VP of sales that I worked with, would ask about each of these things. And the man could not pronounce a foreign, I love him, but he cannot pronounce a foreign word to save his life. And one of the people we were selling to was the Apostolic Church of God. And every week, for 10 weeks while that deal was in the forecast, he came up with a new way to mispronounce this word the apostolic, the apostolic. Uh, He was adding words, and it was, to me, a person who hears this word on a regular basis. It was just bizarre because I'm so used to this word, apostolic or apostle. But for him, 
it might as well have been Greek. It was a foreign word he never got his mind around the pronunciation of. But that's not the case in the first century. This was not an obscure technical Christian word at that point. Uh, the word apostolos is a word that had a common broad meaning. It was something of an emissary, an ambassador, a representative sent by a government to another place to represent them. So it's somebody, the word literally has the root of being sent from. So it's something that is sent out from somewhere to represent. So that's who these people are. They're people who were designated and appointed to be sent for a purpose. But it does have, even in the early century, it does have a technical sense because it's, it does get used in a general sense sometimes in the Bible, but it also has a very specific sense of a set of people. At this point, there's 12 of them who are the early leaders of the church. These are men who were appointed by Jesus to go serve a purpose, to serve a purpose of leadership. It's a group that gets expanded eventually. It, start, it includes Paul, who's also appointed by Jesus directly in this. And it seems to also include, at the very least, James, his brother, Although it's, and it might go beyond that. But these were people who had authority in the early church. They were designated by God to serve a certain purpose in this early body. Um, and the question is, what were they called to do? What is the thing they're meant to serve in? And the nice thing is we don't really have to guess. Um, there's a, I don't know, one of the first controversies of the early church was that there's two groups. There's the Jews and there's the Greeks. And there's a frustration between the two groups over how the widows are being taken care of. And the and they bring this frustration to the leaders, the apostles, who basically take the stance of we're going to appoint some men to deal with this properly, to make sure both groups are being taken care of so that we can devote ourselves, it's again the same word, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This was their purpose, was prayer and the ministry of the word, which is oddly the two things we see here, a f prayer and the teaching. So again, this is the important thing to which they were sent. They were sent to prayer and to bring this teaching, this proclamation that they were given by Jesus. So that's who these people are, the apostles. So the question is, is what is the teaching? What is the apostles' teaching to which these people gave themselves an obstinate pursuit that they attended to with a consistency? And again, the nice thing is Luke doesn't leave us guessing. Um, this section follows immediately after Pentecost. And Pentecost isn't just the Spirit falls and 3,000 are saved and then this happens. It's the Spirit falls and then there's a long sermon, 3,000 are saved, and then this section follows. And that section is one of our first examples of what this apostolic teaching was. And the interesting thing is it's not exactly what we would expect. It's not the sermon I would have thought would have been the first sermon of a new church. It doesn't open with what we think the major, like the major notes are of this message of a forgiveness of sin or a relationship with God. It starts, it's much different than that. These people accumulate around Peter because they hear this noise. And Peter's opening line is basically that, no, really they aren't drunk, but that this is something that has been prophesied. This is a falling of the spirit that's been given. And then he pivots from there to talking about Jesus. And what he says about Jesus is that Jesus was a man attested to by God that he was killed, 
but that he has been raised from the dead because death could not hold him and he has now been seated at the right hand of the Father, which is the hand of authority, a hand of ruling power. And he now sits there while his enemies are brought to bear to fall before him. He reigns until they are made to his his footstool. And then Peter ends with the very friendly statement that, and you killed him. Um, Which is, again, not what you expected on the first uh, sermon. Um, It's not the content you're looking for, the love, the forgiveness, the go do this. It is Jesus reigned and he will reign over this kingdom that is here. And this is something that is not, and it's not an irregularity. This is not the only time we take this weird tack with a sermon. The next time Peter speaks, which is in Acts 3, he gets, he's, again, people are accumulated around him, and he says, there was a holy prophet attested to by God, Jesus, and you killed him. Um, then he gets arrested, and he's standing before the religious leaders. And his basic stance is, yeah, Jesus now has been raised and reigns uh, in heaven, and you killed him. Uh, This is the repeated message he gives, is that Jesus is reigning. And Paul picks this up. This isn't just Peter. When Paul stands in uh, Greece, and he's bringing this new testimony to a non-Jewish world, what he tells them is, he speaks of the unknown God, but the point he drives home is that the time for ignorance is past. God is coming to judge the world through this man, that there is a man given authority to reign. And this is even Jesus' primary announcement. As he goes from town to town, the thing he announces first and foremost is that the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. The chief message, the foundational message is that Jesus died, he was raised, and now he reigns. It's a message of a king and a kingdom. And all the thing, the other things that we sometimes think are the main notes are founded on that. They stand because of that. It doesn't matter if we have forgiveness from him if he doesn't reign. None of you are seeking my forgiveness for your souls for anything you've done wrong. And the reason being, I have no say in what happens in the end. And if you look at the world as it stands right now, if you just take a natural look at the way things are, this world does not necessarily paint a just picture. This is a world where the wicked flourish and the righteous are, are perpetually stamped down. It's a world you can look at and wonder, is God indifferent to what's happening here? Does he care? And if this is the world and this is all that's it, so what? Who cares if we have forgiveness? Who even cares if we have relationship? Because who wants a relationship with someone that distant from this suffering? But... If Jesus' death shows how seriously God takes this suffering, if it shows how seriously he takes the sin that, we, that inflicts the pain into this world, which it does because it required a death, that was the judgment for it. And if it shows, and if his resurrection shows that that death could not hold him and that he has now been raised to the right hand of the Father, it shows that there's a good person you want a relationship with, and it shows that you need to know where you stand with him because where you stand with him will matter. And that's why the forgiveness matters. Because we're going before the actual ruler of this world. 
And that's where these hearers of this first sermon are. That's why they're suddenly struck to the core. These are people who realize in an instant that there was a true king, but that they rose up with the occupying powers of his land to vanquish that king. This is like when a country gets invaded and then you have some people in the invaded country who see their opportunity to rise up and be collaborators with the oppressive government because it will benefit them. And that is the state of mankind. This world has been invaded. It was God's world and the authority has slipped into Satan's hand and we rise up to, to join in that. And these people see in this moment that though they did, they rose their hand to the ultimate point of trying to kill the righteous true king, that he now reigns, and they have a response that would not, probably not be proper to speak here in a sermon. Something along the lines of fiddlesticks, but a little harder. And they say, what can we do? They drive to Peter saying, what can we do? And that's where you see the sweet forgiveness that comes, where he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Because the king has returned. And we can rejoice in this. The gospel is good news because the righteous king who loves this world, who hates the things that tarnish it, sits on the throne. And he has shown that he will not dally along with sin forever that he will vanquish the wickedness that tarnishes this world and he will set it back to what it was meant to be. And he shows that because of the way it was accomplished, we can be saved and take part in that new creation. So this is the foundational teaching. It is a teaching that there is a king and a kingdom. It's a teaching about a kingdom. It's not our job as Christians to go and convict the world of sin. We've said that, and it's absolutely true. But it is our job to announce that there's a king who reigns over this world. We announce it with our words, we announce it with our lives, and we let people draw the connection. And that's what they did. They went forth announcing this king and his kingdom. But what's interesting about the content of the teaching is the way that it gets presented. Peter doesn't just stand up and see... Like he doesn't have, these people are coming. He's got a crowd accumulated and he doesn't just look at them and go, oh, you think this is crazy? Yeah, this is um, the spirit falling. Now, the first thing he does is he references an Old Testament prophecy. And then he turns around and um, starts talking about Jesus. And he doesn't simply say, you saw Jesus. He did wondrous signs and amazing things. But again, he references an Old Testament prophecy. And then he moves along and he gets to the fact that Jesus is now reigning and will bring this all to a close, having completely defeated evil. And again, he doesn't just state that, he references an Old Testament prophecy. He continually references back to the Old Testament to give the context for this teaching. I mean, that's the same model we see in Paul. When you, when you go through Paul's missionary teachings, what it says is he goes to the town. The first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue and reasons from the scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. And he does that until they kick him out. And then he goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and shows, tells them about this person. Can't really use the Old Testament at that point to reason with them. But even then, we have reason to know that the Teaching content, once they understand this, is again, they're shown the Old Testament and taught from there who this Jesus was and what this kingdom is. 
And this is a model the early church picks up. Through the first centuries, they consistently use, in the writings we have, the Old Testament to explain what's going on, to speak of who Jesus is and what this kingdom is about. And it's Jesus' method as well. In the section that Mike read, you see Jesus went, as was his habit, to the temple on the Sabbath, to the synagogues on the Sabbath, and he read from the Old Testament scriptures. And then when he went to explain to the Jews, and something that was actually quite offensive, that God went to people outside of Israel and brought blessing during hard times, he did it by referencing Old Testament scriptures. These Old Testament texts were something that was, they were treated with a great deal of respect and reverence in the early church. They were the texts that were used by the apostles for this teaching. And there's a problem because we tend to, there's a tendency at least today to view them as problematic as something that is to be struggled with. There's a tendency to play Jesus against the Old Testament. Um, And you can see some of the reason this happens. It makes some sense because depending upon your picture you have of Jesus, some aspects of the Old Testament just feel like it doesn't fit. And what that can lead to is a desire to either strongly filter the Old Testament or to basically jettison it entirely. And this is something that has existed in the church from the early days. One of the first heresies was one that basically said the Old Testament God was a different God entirely. But again, it's not how, what Jesus did. The problem is what we have of a record of Jesus shows a completely different use of the Old Testament. It shows a respect and an expectation around it. He makes, as I said, constant uses in explaining who he is and in defending his ministry. I mean, he lives his life self-consciously in such a way that the gospel writers could go back and basically annotate it around Old Testament texts, explaining what he did in light of what was said centuries prior. And the strange thing is, he almost seems to go out of his way to reference the things that we find most challenging and most embarrassing. He references by name Adam, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Job, and Jonah, as though they're people that existed and the stories about them were true. He speaks of the clouds, the sky being shut up for three and a half years, and talks about the healing of Nahum. So Jesus viewed the Old Testament as authoritative in some way. But the question still is how? Because people can look at that and say, okay, yeah, sure, Jesus viewed it as authoritative, but how did he view it as authoritative? Because you can still say, well, Jesus was the inspired one. And the Old Testament was simply a record of people's interactions with God. And what Jesus, through his inspiration, was able to do was to tell us what actually happened. He could call out the texts that were true, the ones that were important. He could reference those so we can actually kind of, again, through Jesus, filter what we see. So Jesus is the inspired one. 
The Old Testament scriptures are a nice record of people's interactions, but they're rife with errors. And aside from Jesus's or the apostles' interpretations of them, they're a very problematic text. And this is obviously true at one level. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, very obviously has human authors. Um, their personalities show through. Their particular agendas, the things they're, the points they're trying to make, are clear. So we have we have four gospels, and they are not four mirror images of each other. They are four gospels with the information arranged and ordered in a particular way to each of those gospels to make different points. They take the same source material and arrange it in a different way to make a different point. I mean, it's very clear. My Greek is extremely poor. I struggle through Paul. I basically, in order to read him, I have to have a dictionary open, and I'm constantly going, okay, this word means this, this, because he will do his main verb over here, and like down here, he's finishing a sentence. There's 75 prepositional phrases in between, because why not? But I can read John. I can sit there, and it's still labor, but I can just kind of plug through, because his Greek is so much easier. It is so clearly human authors writing these words. So there's something to be said with this idea that there's a human writing these. And it comes against an error that often shows up in the church, which views these as something of just a dictation, as though the inspiration of Scripture was somebody sat down and they fell into a trance and they started doing this for a while and they popped their head up and there was Isaiah. That's not the way the church traditionally has viewed these books. It was something that was done through the human authors writing into their personal contexts. But still, and Jesus even agrees with this, he ascribes the authorship of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, he ascribes it to Moses. But there's something that we should note here. Uh, I just want to look at two texts to draw this out. First, let's look at something Moses wrote. Moses wrote this. Um, This is in Genesis 2. Uh, Sorry, chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the question is, who says this sentence? It's not in quotation marks. This isn't given to Adam to say. Adam's not saying, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and then he goes on, therefore. This is said by Moses, who's writing the book. He's the author. When you have a book and you have something you take out of quotes, you're the person saying it, right? Not a trick question. Moses wrote this. But then, flip to Matthew 19, in verse 4. And this is Jesus having a discussion, an argument about divorce. That's the context for the statement, but the actual what's happening here is actually not that important to the point I'm trying to make. What I just want to read is what it says, which is, where I lost my place, apologies. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So who says in this sentence, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? Yeah. It's the one who made 
than male and female. That was not Moses. So what Jesus is doing here is he's looking at a book that he ascribes the authorship to Moses. And he's also looking at the words that Moses clearly wrote and saying, and God said. And this happens a number of times through the scripture. And it happens both ways. In some cases, God says something and Paul will say, and the scriptures say. Because we want to have either it's a human author or it's God speaking. And the question we want to come to the text with is, which one is it? And the Bible's and the early church's answer to this was, yes, it's both. There's something that happens, and it's a mystery how it happens, that God manages to put the words he wants on the page, the words he wants to say, his words, into the mouths of humans through who they are and their particular personalities and the inspiration the Spirit's given them that he makes the people such that they would want to write that sentence to get the words he wants said. So Jesus views scripture, he views the Old Testament as having both a human author, but also that it is God's words, to, God's words spoken, that it has a human and a divine author. But still the question is, and another line that gets read about how we view these things and how Jesus viewed their authority is that we need to read them the right way. And there's an argument being made right now that we need to read them literarily and not literally. Basically saying we need to read them in the context in which they're written. We need to understand what we're reading, that sometimes we're reading poetry that sometimes we're reading a narrative and a story, that sometimes we're reading a letter that's written to somebody. Sometimes it's a prayer, and sometimes it's just a weird apocalyptic revelation. And that we need to understand these things to understand this text. You can't just, like, woodenly go back and pull a text out of its context and therefore say, this says this, and now it stands that way, as though it's a reference book where every sentence is meant to be read in a very literal sense. And again, there is a huge amount of truth to this. The only commentary I ever threw down and discussed, um, and I've read a number of commentaries I don't agree with, the only one that I threw down and discussed was actually written from a very conservative um, standpoint on the book of Revelation, saying that you need to take everything said here literally unless it's explicitly said not to. And he tried to hold that line and it got weirder and weirder and weirder until he got to the point about the grasshoppers that bite and cause bloody wounds. And he goes, obviously these are helicopters. And at that point I threw the book away. Um, we need to read these in the context in which they're written. We, you need to come to the text looking for what it's trying to say. If I get a love letter from my wife, it's proper for me to look at that text and take from it her love from me and see what's written there. It would be very silly for me to try and do the same thing with the grocery list she gave me yesterday. I could try and do it. I mean, I'd be like, she said to buy this cereal and then she said, cereal too, you choose. I mean, that's love right there. <laughs> but what I'm really trying to do there is beat a text that doesn't say something about that into saying it because that's the questions I'm coming to. You need, we do need to go to texts to hear them in their context, to see them written the way they're intended to say. And again, this is an important corrective to the church. 
the church for a long, the, sorry, I really should just write the early church out of this one because Darren is guilty of this. The more recent church has had a bad history of trying to turn the Bible into an atomized reference book that you can pull any text and make it mean what you mean. It mean um, the way you can make it. I can complete the sentence, I promise. <laughs> you can use it however you want. There we go. We do need to read these things in the correct manner. It's what we always said when I spoke about the early part of Genesis a while back. We come to it with our questions. It's like me going to the grocery list trying to figure out if Becca loves me. We go to the Genesis and our first question is evolution versus creation, age of the earth. That's not what that chapter was trying to set out. You might better speak to that, but it's not the main focus of that chapter. So we need to read things in their literary context. I came to the church in my 20s and I thought the way, so I had not had much history with the Bible, and I come in there, and I, but I was a lifelong reader. I'm used to reading texts, and I thought the way the church treated the scripture was weird, because it was. It was very wooden in the way it's reading, and you end up doing strange things like trying to justify the things the judges do in the book of Judges, and if you've read Judges with us recently, just don't try and justify what they're doing. Usually it's wrong. So we do need to read them the way they're meant to be read, but too often this tack goes from its right corrective to a way of actually just trying to undermine the authority of the text entirely. It looks at something and says, we need to read Psalms as poetry and prayers because that's what they are. And therefore, how authoritative can a, a poem be? That, so we need, and it needs, but that's not, again, the way Jesus treats the text. I had a long example here, which I mercifully cut for all of you. But if you're really struggling with this, go to John 10, 34. And look at the way Jesus uses the psalm there. He uses a psalm, which he references as the law. He uses it to base an authoritative argument on. And he uses a small, obscure, poetic flourish that you could cut from the psalm to get its meaning to base his case upon. Basically, at one point, God in the psalm says, I think, I called you God, them gods. I called you gods. Speaking of the, author, the high state of these kings. It's a poetic flourish, but Jesus bases an argument with people upon it. He views that as authoritative, a, a poem written in the language of a poem. He still views it as authoritative. And the truth is, reading literarily, as opposed to literally, actually tends to expand the authority of the text. Like if you come to the Psalms and you read them in a very strict, literal sense, you get to the line where it says, he, speaking of God, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you either view him as literally only owning the cattle on a thousand hills, which means somebody's got the rest of the cattle. Or you end up, what often happened when the church would take it to literally, of trying to figure out how there's only a thousand hills in the world which is equally awkward. When the truth is, that simply means he owns all the cattle. It's just a poetic way of saying that. And a non-literal reading of Revelation turns it from a weird end-time science fiction story into something that can speak of the downfall of Rome, that can tell the repeated downfall of empires that rise up to crush the church, and can also speak of the end-time battle where vic or, uh, evil is ultimately vanquished. It can do all three at the same time. 
because it's written as an apocalyptic prophetic text, not bad science fiction. And taking something as a narrative, as opposed to trying to pull the story and find little principles, reading it literarily as a narrative, you will find, as opposed to, when you go to it as a reference book, you can pull the texts out and apply them to your life. When you realize it's a story, you realize that you're standing in the middle of it. You're suddenly caught up in a large stream that's pushing you one direction because you're, the wave of the overarching story takes over. So Jesus looks at the Old Testament. He sees it as something where the authorship was God, where it is read in its correct context, but still authoritative, authoritative in the small details. And because of this, he can do what he does on the road to Emmaus. The day he's resurrected, after he makes the initial appearance, two disciples are walking back. They don't realize he's raised yet. They're walking home to Emmaus, and he appears beside them on the road, and they don't recognize him, which is weird, but it happened. Who knows what resurrected Jesus looked like? We'll find out someday. But he, they basically, he basically walks up to him and says, hey, what's up? Because they're feeling downtrodden and upset, and they basically look at him like he's crazy, basically say, are you the only person who doesn't know what happened? There was a prophet we hoped was the Messiah, but he was dead. He got killed. And what Jesus proceeds to do over the next few hours is from the Old Testament, starting with Moses running through the prophets, show from all the scriptures how it showed that must happen and how it pointed to him. He can do this because behind the multitude of authors and behind the multitude of different literary formats, there is a coherent voice trying to point to him. It's a story, again, of a king raised up to authority, retaking his rule over the world. It's a good king who comes bringing forgiveness to the people who had rebelled and tried to resist him coming for as long as possible. It's a story of Jesus' authority. And this is an authority that is both undergirds the Old Testament because it speaks of him and is also grounded in the Old Testament because the Old Testament speaks of this authority that will come. And it's an authority that he gives to these apostles who are his representative who then teach about this. And those, now the sad thing for us is we don't have Peter with us. Apologies to Rome, we don't. But what we have is the texts they wrote. The apostles wrote texts. And what we have in the New Testament, what we'd refer to as the New Testament, is a collection of the writings of the apostles and the people close to the apostles. Even the gospels, Mark was not an apostle, but tradition holds, he traveled with the apostles and the tradition holds that Peter was the main influence behind that one. And Luke was with Paul, pretty much Paul's entire ministry time. James was the brother of Jesus. Jude also. The only one we really have a question mark here is Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote it. Yeah. Um, so we have a collection of these people who were given a teaching authority, writing from within that teaching authority, and that same authority we have through the whole scriptures carries through. That means, taken together, that this is the apostolic teaching. 
It's the grounds from which they, they taught in the Old Testament, and it's the collection we have of the teaching they gave in the New Testament times. That's what we have in the Bible. We have this thing that they doggedly pursued as the early church. Speaking of the two main things you say about this early church, they were committed to a fellowship with God and with one another, and they pursued this teaching. We have something immensely valuable in the scriptures. So why is it so important, though, to pursue it? Yeah, great, it's valuable. Lots of things are valuable. But why is it so important? So we've asked the who, it's the apostles. The what of their teaching, it was announcement of Jesus and his kingdom, he that's now reigning. So why is this important? It's because this is a kingdom that we, the king, this is the kingdom we are now in, is a kingdom we have been trained to not see. It's a kingdom we have been trained to not live in the ways of. And I'm not speaking of some vast conspiracy. Well, I am kind of. I'm not talking about like the conspiracy of Hollywood or a left-wing conspiracy here. I'm talking about the overarching just conspiracy of the wickedness of this world, the powers that reign in this world that have blinded people to this kingdom. This kingdom comes in as something utterly foreign. I mean, its ways are not our ways. This is a kingdom where the last are first, where the one who would be greatest of all will be servant of all. Those are not things you pick up just by looking outside or watching your television. This is something completely foreign to who we are outside of this kingdom. I mean, if you wake up in the morning and you are 100% understanding and convinced that the last will be first and the greatest is servant of all, and you go through your day never wavering in that conviction and needing nothing to remind you of it and not really feeling like anything's pushing against you in the other way, please tell me how you're doing it. Because it's not my experience. My experience is that I need to be reminded of this and retaught this on a perpetual basis. I forget this every time I turn around. And I think we all do. It is a foreign life to the one that we live. And most of these attacks upon biblical authority are attacks attempting to make it less foreign. A general rule of thumb is if you find a new way of reading the Bible that makes it less foreign, that makes it so that it will now vote straight ticket for the party you prefer, or that it'll fit in with all the people you like and the life you would have chosen otherwise, you've probably sanded off a number of corners. I mean, this is what we do. If you ever watch a movie set in the, um, I mean, really, set any time before now. Any modern Hollywood movie, and you want to know who the hero is, it's the person who's closest to us, our modern age error, in their beliefs. We can't view something different from us as being the right side. You're not going to see, if you see an old time movie, you're going to see the person who has the most democratic beliefs and the most progressive uh, sexual ethic. That is your hero in that movie. You are not going to see the authoritative patriarch as the hero in the film. We try 
we view our culture, the world we, and this is very natural, we view the culture we're in as the standard by which things are judged. And then we try and sand things down and reread that into everything. And we do the same thing with the scriptures. We try to, and we can't let that happen. This text needs to remain foreign. Because if we do that, we start hearing God only if he's making sense to us according to something else. And we start obeying him only if it seems like a reasonable thing to do. And at that point, we turn Jesus into our life coach who's going to help us achieve our goals as opposed to a king whom we submit to. This book should feel odd. Someone said this morning, they were talking about how they had their perfect systems. They like it when things feel nice and systematic. But then reading the Old Testament, and I would say actually reading the New Testament, you find something that doesn't fit. It's this odd shaped thing. It's like when you have, you got your suitcase and you can nicely pack your clothes up and you got to bring some weird shaped child's implement. At which point you keep shuffling things around and then you just give up and carry it because it won't fit. This should feel odd to us. Scripture should be challenging, and it should be challenging for the rest of our lives because we are undergoing a persistent sanctification. We can actually take comfort in the fact that it's challenging. The fact that we struggle with God means he's probably something we didn't invent. That we're looking at somebody who frustrates us. My wife frustrates me. It's because she's not a figment of my imagination and she has desires that are her own. God is not something we created. And if we find everything that, if he just happens to agree with us on everything, we probably have somehow missed that. And we're at a real risk that we're following ourselves and just calling it Jesus. So how do we do this? This is a community series. We're talking about how we do these things collectively. Um, And we are trying to do things that will collectively help us to hear this teaching. I mean, we are gonna continue to have sermons, which hopefully get executed in that way. Um, We've added in a scripture reading just to try and get us to hear scripture more regularly. Um, In the home groups, we're adding a, there's gonna be a section of teaching. So we can actually have a conversational communication about what's being said here. But the truth is, this is something that is still going to be dependent on our individual efforts. We need to pursue it obstinately. Reading something literarily, again, which is the right way to read this, actually requires more effort. I don't need to read the entire encyclopedia to answer my question about elephants. When I have a question about elephants, I open the encyclopedia up, I turn to the elephant section. It doesn't matter if I've never read anything else in E or in much of the other volumes. I just read the thing on elephants. I get my question answered, hopefully. That's not the way a literary work like the Bible works. It actually involves reading the whole thing and reading it repeatedly. It involves returning to these texts again and again and again. Because if you come to it the way I come to my questions about elephants, you're going to get weird answers. 
the best time to go to the Bible is when you don't have questions, actually, because you're actually going to listen to what it's trying to say. And then the questions arise, and you actually go, I read about that a while back. Which means you can't get around the fact that this just requires time. It's going to require application. It's going to require actually doing it day by day. And there's different ways you can do that. And different of us are in different places in our lives, and there's different things you can do here. My wife, our child's youngest is one and a half. She's starting to get some free time, but I promise you, I spent more time in scripture um, than she did for the first year of his life because she was usually up at 2 a.m. feeding him, and then the uh, morning quiet time usually was spent sleeping. So we're in different places, and we need to do it according to that. There is a place where sometimes we just need to read for exposure. Just get in and just read the text. Just get it there. Because then you're going to come back sometime later and you're going to read something else and go, wait a second, that actually related to what I read over here. And there's times to just to sit down for the text and read quietly, slowly, listening to, for God for a section. And then for those of us who are just ridiculously busy, and we all have those seasons in our lives, just meditate on a phrase. Pick a word, a phrase out of scripture and roll it over in your mind when you have a little bit of downtime during your work day. Pick the first, um, the first will be last. Yeah, actually, the first will be last and the last will be first. When you get a little downtime, roll it over. It's good for me to remember. My work environment is extremely competitive and I can get caught up in the competitiveness of it a great deal. I'm a competitive person. So I need to consistently be reminding myself the last or first, and the greatest is servant of all. Just meditate on these things. Pour it over. Write it down somewhere. My wife is sort of person who writes scriptures down in random places in our house. So I'm washing dishes, and there's a verse from Lamentations over the sink, which is nice. It's a little reminder of those small things. So find what will work for you and fit something in. Try and expand it. But find something that will work now. One of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is I used to think if I couldn't accomplish it in a year, it probably wasn't worth doing. And then that turned into two years. And I got a little older and finally I was like, okay, three-year plans are okay. And now it's like, you know what? I'm going to put seven minutes a day to this. I might get it when I'm 50, but I'll have learned something. And we can treat scripture that way. Don't look at the Bible and go, this thing is really thick. I'll never make it through it. Reading through the Bible once every five years is better than never reading it. Secondly, we need to come towards us with a presumption of obedience. These texts are hard, and they are challenging. And they need to be understood, and they need to be understood in their context. Again, reading the scriptures literarily means understanding what's going on there. The epistles are letters written to specific people, which means everything they say doesn't necessarily apply in the words that are said there. But we still should come to the text with the presumption that I'm going to obey it unless I understand why I shouldn't. As opposed to looking for a reason to disqualify it. I mean, there's a weird example of a text like the Holy Kiss. Paul ends his longest, most thick letter almost ends, towards the end, saying, greet everyone with a holy kiss. 
I have greeted none of you with a holy kiss. And we're okay, we're okay with this. We don't even know what the holy kiss is. But what we do know. So the question is, is that at all authoritative in our life, a phrase like that? And I would say, yes, it is. Because what we come when we see something like that, we don't know exactly what was happening there. And we shouldn't try and just blindly imitate it. Walking around kissing everybody, saying it's holy. Um, But what we see here is a kiss is a sign of intimacy. And in the early church, you have a collection of people across ethnic groups, across class groups. You have masters and servants together in the same body. And these people are being called to do something which we don't understand that betrays a familial affection. And that is something we are called to do. I'm called to greet you warmly as though you were a member of my extended family because you are. So these texts, if we just go to them and go, yeah, that one's cultural, toss it out, without actually wrestling with it, we miss something. So we need to come to texts not looking for reasons why we shouldn't obey them, but for reasons why it might, be, it might apply to us. And with all of this, going back to the corporate thing, we need to come together to do this. We are in different places in lives. In our lives, we have different amount of time we can spend on this. We have different degrees of understanding. But it's something we are called to proclaim to one another. The um, text that gets horribly abused, speaking the truth in love, which for some reason is taken to the church to mean tell people you love them before you say something really hard, is actually a call to speak the truth, the whole truth, to proclaim what the kingdom is, to remind people, one another consistently of the gospel, to tell each other who we are because we need to be reminded, to tell each other what's important, to remind each other of the ways of this kingdom. It's something we need to do on a consistent basis. It's what we're trying to do in home groups. We come together so that we can speak to one another the truths of the gospel. I need to be reminded of these things. I need my wife to come alongside me and remind me of who I am when I start to get frustrated, of who Jesus is. And she needs the same from me. And we need the same from one another. Because the goal of speaking the truth in love, the goal of proclaiming the gospel to one another, to gospeling each other, is that we might grow into the head, into Christ. That this body might grow together so that every part of us will be working properly and this body will grow up in love. That happens as we come proclaiming this truth to each other, telling each other what this kingdom is.